Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Martz. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, this is Johnny and welcome to episode 53 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I am here with Sam Marks. Johnny, we couldn't be sitting in a nicer place anywhere in the world, I don't think. Yeah, we are in a old converted monastery in Catalonia, Spain. Man, it's it's pretty spectacular. It's good to get out of the city for a bit. Although Barcelona is one heck of a city, this is a nice retreat. And man, I'm excited for this week on the show. We have on Torstein. What a great name, Torstein. It actually sounds like it's something maybe out of like Game of Thrones or or uh, one of the old Viking wars of such. But even cooler than his name, he's the CEO and co-founder of CrowdStreet, which is always regularly regarded as one of the top crowdfunding for real real estate crowdfunding sites in the industry. So we're excited to have him on and learn more about how real estate crowdfunding works. Yeah, definitely. Because I'm really interested in acquiring more commercial real estate, but not necessarily managing myself. I value my location independence and my free time so much. So I'm interested in how CrowdStreet works. To be honest, I took a look at the website and I was confused at all the terms. And I was like, Maybe I shouldn't do this because I have no idea what he's talking about or any of these terms are talking about. Uh So hopefully in this episode, we'll clarify a couple of things. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the exact same mindset as as you and I on that. And this is one of the hottest topics in investing today. Not only commercial real estate, but commercial real estate enabled by crowdfunding. And there's a lot of of things that are unknown in the category being a brand, brand new alternative asset class. So let's get them on. And let's hear about you know what, what we can learn about this because it's something that I'm definitely leaning towards doing a lot more of. I love it. So let's take a listen to Torstein. Everybody, welcome back. Tor, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us on Invest Like a Boss. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for inviting me today. Yeah, this is going to be fun. I, you know, One of the hottest investment classes, it seems, is commercial real estate, kind of by way of, of crowdfunding. And man, you must have seen some rapid changes in the last five years. I think you guys launched in 2013. Correct. Yes. We we launched our company in 2013 and then the actual marketplace uh, launched in April of 2014. It must have been a lot of fun. I know you guys are based in the fantastic city of Portland. And maybe you could just take us back briefly to how CrowdStreet got started and what the vision was. Yeah, certainly, Sam. And, and like you said, um, it's been a crazy five years. Uh, and if you look at commercial real estate, you know, not not a lot really changed in terms of investing in commercial real estate for decades, right? It's been done pretty much the same way. If you had very large projects, you usually had institutional investors. If you had smaller projects, and by smaller projects, kind of under forty million dollars, you you raise money through you know high net worth investors, and so. It's worked that way for many years, and and on the debt side of it, you know, you have the banks that you know provide the, the the debt portion of the commercial real estate project. But you know, with some regulatory changes, the SEC kind of and the passage of the Jobs Act, with obviously consumer behavior around online investing changing, um, we've seen a, a quite a shift over the last five years. And when Darren and I, my my co-founder Darren Powderly, uh, got together. Um, we were excited about the potential, uh, which is bring the third largest asset class for our country, commercial real estate, 
uh, and make it more generally available to the investment community, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Stocks and bonds, as we all know, have been hugely popular and easy to invest in for years now, right? And commercial real estate has been this this kind of one asset class that, that um, investors really didn't have a, an easy way to invest directly into. So mm-hmm. that's how we, we kind of got started with the vision of you know, bring this uh, and transform real estate investing by creating these kind of universally accessible and transparent, efficient markets. And this was never really available before the Jobs Act, I think is kind of what enabled this all, correct? Yeah, it was definitely part of the the transformation that occurred was um, Title II of the Jobs Act, uh, specifically in September of 2013, that allowed people to start to generally advertise a commercial real estate or any kind of equity investment, not just commercial real estate, could be in companies as well. And and before that time, it was really done in a very private manner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I call it the country club money. It was, uh, you know, the real estate developers knew specific investors. Um, they had a relationship with them and they would really make their offering available to just that small community of investors. And so the, the Jobs Act really helped to, you know, coming out of the doldrums of 2008, the Great Recession, as we all know, um, there was this belief that, you know, how do we decentralize kind of investing, right, mm-hmm. and and capital raising and capital formation so that it doesn't just reside in, in a few hands of the big banks or few high net worth investors. Gotcha. I'm excited to hear a little bit about a few of the kind of key people on your team, some of the executives. And there's there's one guy, I don't want to stroke his ego too much, but he looks kind of like a cross between... I want to say Tom Brady and maybe like a Mark Wahlberg. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> that might be our VP of marketing, Marshall Clark. <laughs> no, I, I th- let me check. Steve Drew. Steve Drew. Oh, well, he'll he'll love he'll get very uh, flattered. That is the photo on the About Us page. You got to take a look. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, maybe you could just tell us about a, a couple of the uh, the main guys on the team. Yeah, and and you know Darren and I when we got together, uh, we're pretty purposeful around you know how do we need to round out the the leadership team here, right? Mm-hmm. Because as we transform this industry, it's not just about the technology and the internet and software side of things, but it's also not just about the commercial real estate domain or the finance and private equity domain, but it's really all of them together. So, you know, Darren, my co-founder, he, you know, has been in commercial real estate the last 15 years. He was a partner, uh, a managing partner of a well-known firm here in in, uh, Oregon called Compass Commercial. So he'd been working with, you know, lots of syndicators of real estate Mm -hmm. um, and new trials and tribulations. Um, And then, you know, on the other side, uh, the the Tom Brady lookalike, I guess, Steve Drew, uh, (laughs) our VP of products and services. You know, Steve comes from 20 years of uh, deep B2B software technology and understanding how to build, uh, you know, scalable uh, systems and and marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And adding to it, I'll kind of... uh, as you saw in my bio, I've, I don't. I'm lacking in the hair category. Um, somebody else on our management team, you'd appreciate it, Ian Formigli. You're in good company. You're in very good company with me and Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> 
and so as you can see, uh, and, and Ian, you know, he comes out of the deep finance side of commercial real estate. He was, uh, uh, you know, a vice president at Scanlon Kemper Bard, a private equity real estate uh, that's well known here on the West Coast. And so he comes with that deep expertise of acquisition of, of large scale projects and working with both institutional as well as uh, individual investors. And so we really look at as three legs of that stool of commercial real estate expertise, finance and private equity side of things, and then Internet and software. Beautiful thing. And you guys must love living out in Portland. I think that's one of the, the best cities in the U.S. You know, that's what we like to think. And, you know, we don't want to tell too many people about it. Okay. Uh, so, you know, but uh, yeah, we've uh, many of us, uh, as you look at the management team, you can tell from our backgrounds, uh, we did not, uh, we're not born and raised in Portland, but we found our way here. Really cool. Well, I know a lot of listeners, including myself, have been recently confused about the definition of commercial real estate. And I guess I always thought of it growing up as kind of strip malls, office buildings, but it seems to be like a much, much larger category. How do you guys define commercial real estate over at CrowdStreet? Yeah, I mean, I think from the you know, dictionary side of things, you can think of it as it's um, it's investment income property, really, that's intended to generate a profit from capital gain or rental income. I mean, that's a pretty, mm-hmm. you know, that's the one sentence definition. But, you know, when you think about that definition, it, it applies across kind of investment grade assets from, you know, office to senior housing, to storage, to retail, to multifamily, you know, large multifamily projects. And so it really goes across what we call the different asset types mm. as, uh, you know, in CrowdStreet, really, that's where our focus is, is, is purely on that institutional quality type of commercial real estate. Gotcha. So it can be residential, but it has to be in the multifamily type of category. Yeah, exactly, Sam. That's kind of where we where we put up the you know the dividing line, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some people might even consider on residential, for example, some people might say, "Hey, a massive you know residential development could be looked at as commercial, right?" It's a mm-hmm. it's more meant to be done on a more an investment income basis as opposed to single family you know kind of housing. Mm. So, on while we're on the education stuff. I always notice that there's grades given to properties. A lot of times it's A, B, and C. I think it can even go worse than that or lower than that. Does this strictly have everything to do with risk or is it more the quality of the property? It's really the latter, as you mentioned, Sam. It's really the, the quality of the, of the, of the property. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it could be the, even the location of where it is, right, uh, from a neighborhood perspective. Okay. And so, yeah, it tends to be in that ABC is a lot of times multifamily, you know, large multifamily tend to be kind of along those scales. And can it, does it go any lower to that? Does it go to E or F? Haven't seen them that far. Okay. <laughs> right. We'll stay out of those neighborhoods maybe, if we do. Yeah, be the whole, yeah exactly. That yeah. would be kind of scary. Maybe the whole, pro, um, you know, structure fell down at that point. So. Okay. Good, good to know. Good to know. Well, we spent a lot of time over in Southeast Asia and there's definitely a few structurally in, yeah deficient properties over there, but uh, luckily not ones that we're living in. And uh, I, I know that, again, there's more terminology that's been floating around with, with uh, you know, in commercial real estate. And I think just in, in property investing as a whole, there's cash on cash return, there's IRR, there's preferred return. If someone's really just getting started in real estate crowdfunding, what would be kind of a couple of those terms that they really want to familiarize themselves with? 
Yeah, and you're right. There, there's definitely a lot of terms that get thrown around, and and kind of to our beginning of the conversation, you know, the investors have gotten pretty custom and used to you know stocks and bonds and mutual funds, and we know there's terminology there. But when now we're opening up an asset class to the everyday investor to be able to participate in, we definitely need to explain that vocabulary and what they should look for. And I really think there's five of the most important terms that the investor should look at. Uh, First is internal rate of return, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really that time-sensitive annual compounded return on the, the amount of investment, right? The equity multiple would be another term that an investor should look at. And that's really the measure of that total growth of the investment, right? You put a $100,000 investment in and it grows to 200,000, it has a 2.0 equity multiple, right? And they're they're important to look at alongside the IRR term, the internal rate of return, because they're not time sensitive, but they show the absolute return. And then kind of the third one would be cash on cash returns. Um, And these are essentially that annual yield on the principal amount of your investment. Many of the, you know, we get getting back to commercial real estate. One of the, you know, upside things that people look at is that most of these projects are cash flowing. So having that cash on cash return. I think the fourth one would be net operating income or NOI, and really this is that unleveraged operating profit of the property. And finally, uh, and a term that many do here, which is cap rate, right? Mm -hmm. And the cap rate that annual rate at which the NOI recapitalizes the property, right? For example, you have a $10 million property with a $500,000 of net operating income, it has a 5% cap rate. And people talk about, you know, exit cap rates, assumptions and things like that based on, you know, how long the the company's held it and what they're going to do with it. So with equity multiple, it's one that kind of caught my ear. Would that be would you look at that as a as a forecast when you're looking at a property? Would they have an equity multiple forecast, or is that statistic only really given in terms of a previous property or something that's been that's currently uh, in operation? Um, it's usually yeah, it's it's a forecast of what the the potential equity multiple is on that project. Mm-hmm. Um, but many times it's in a current income producing type of um, asset. Okay, very cool. Excellent. Understand this stuff a lot better. I'm going to have to get the whiteboard out after this and and draft it all up, but uh, this is good stuff. So when it comes to demographics, it seems like we're in in the midst of a lot of demographic trends. Baby boomers are getting older. Millennials are starting to come of age to be you know, renters and or buyers. Do you guys study any type of demographic trends with regards to renters versus buyers in the USA? Yeah, we we actually do. And um, recently, I think it was Ian that I mentioned earlier, published a good article that talked about the trend of how to invest in, and I'll use multifamily, right, which mm-hmm. is an example. And so just to kind of give, you know, throw out a few stats, uh, and this comes from the U.S. Census Bureau, that home ownership has hit the all-time high at 69.2% in Q2 of 2004. And as we all know, it started to take a slide, right, mm-hmm. um, 2008 to, to 10, obviously very tough years. And it really it slid to that 25 year low at 62.9 percent in Q2 of 2016. So I think that's a pretty big you know that's a pretty big shift when you look across the U.S. And you know while we might see an uptick in home ownership in the future years, I think the tighter mortgage underwriting standards, the demographic shift that's also happening towards this preference in the more locational flexibility and some of the residual hangover from the 2008 housing crisis 
I think it means that we're not going to get back to that 69% for at least for a long time, right? And possibly in our lifetime, it won't get back there. Mm-hmm. We also know, you know, kind of layer onto that, the, the baby boomers, right? And their selling of their houses to downside. Um, you know, are they going to potentially, they might become, you know, more net renters. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're definitely seeing these trends. Um, and we definitely, we, we look at them as we look at uh, potential projects that go on the marketplace. So it's an interesting dynamic. If the homeowners go from 69 to 62%, that means if the population is even or stable, that just more people are becoming rental renters, which I would think would be a good thing for commercial real estate in terms of cash flow, but maybe in terms of a potential equity multiple. And if there's less buyers, then maybe the the cap upside is potentially less. Did I kind of get that general economics right? Well, when you say buyers, you mean buyer residential buyers, right? Oh yeah, yeah, true. Gotcha. And that, yeah, that's not commercial real estate. Yep, exactly. Bingo. So, and that's. Yeah. Yeah. So we stay. That's why we're also very you know, sometimes I heard somebody the other day say, boy, isn't the commercial real estate and the residential, aren't they, you know, just follow each other? And I said, no, there's definitely very stark differences. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that it's not com- completely inverse. Not one doesn't go up and the other go down. But but you can't you, know, so you can't look at them together uh, necessarily. Very cool. So listeners are looking for more information, I noticed you guys have a really good uh, area on the website and the platform called Investor Center. So I definitely encourage them to go check it out there. It looks like you guys publish a lot of your own material and studies and uh, and statistics that you find and kind of aggregate them there. Correct. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, you know, again, as we kind of took this on a, a few years ago, we knew that, you know, when we're now working with investors who haven't invested in this asset class, there had to be a lot of educational things put out and having Ian on our team and, and he has a team of real estate analysts and investment managers on his investments team um, with their deep domain expertise and, and ex- expertise of decades, right? Mm-hmm. Um feel like how do we take everything out of their head and you know put it into articles for people to leverage yeah yeah i think you banged it on the head i I don't know the the demographics that are investing through crowdstreet right now but i know i found like like even your guys introduction video there was just i think you and your partner were on there just kind of talking about what crowdstreet is and and a little bit of your backgrounds i find stuff like that massively educational and helpful and maybe going into a couple of these terms and explaining it to the layman like myself that stuff's really, really helpful. Good. Well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad people and we do get f- good feedback from uh, from people that say that you know not only do they like obviously uh, any marketplace seeing the type of product that's on there, but mm-hmm. they also like the, the educational and the resources that we make available for them. Cool stuff. Well, I want to jump into a little of the asset profiles that are on the platform, and I noticed you kind of categorize them in a little bit of different ways. So one of the the categories was core plus, and then another one was opportunistic, and another one was value added, and then there was development. I'm not sure if there if that's the only four that are on there, but I was hoping you could just explain a little bit of what each of those classes were. Sure, I think, um, and and we actually again, you know, understanding that this is usually a, a, an area that's not well known, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we actually wrote a good article uh, about that, so not to make a another plug, but definitely uh, those. <laughs> 
those those articles are helpful because again, uh, it, it can get a little confusing, mm-hmm. and these tend to be obviously terms that that help for the investor to understand. You know, what is it when we say this office is a is a considered a core asset, right? Mm-hmm. And and just kind of give again the the dictionary and then elaborate. The core asset is really considered the safest. You know, it sits at that bottom of the risk return ladder. Um, so there are relatively stable assets, major metros, you know, New York City, Chicago, San Francisco. And then you think of them as like the high rise office towers, right? The sparkling uh, uh, large apartment buildings in, in downtown locations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're usually the best in class properties in the best locations with the high stable occupancy rates and credit tenants. So again, on that risk kind of to reward pendulum, they're going to be, you know, less risky, but probably not as much of a huge, you know, kind of reward side. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always liken the core, the core assets to, you know, in the stock, you know, kind of spectrum, it's, you know, it's your large cap, you know, value maybe, right? Great. It's, yeah. You're not going to knock it out of the park, but, but you're, you're going to feel pretty safe, right? So does that help from the, what a core is? Yeah, no, definitely. I love the, the comparison to large cap. That's something that will be easy to digest for a lot of people. Yeah. And then it kind of goes that pendulum, you know, again, core plus it's, you know, it's the next rung in that risk ladder. It's, um, you know, some of the similar characteristics to the core, um, but, you know, with one or more exceptions that create that added risk, mm-hmm. uh, it could be maybe the age or the condition of the asset. There could have been a little dip in tenant credit or maybe a less stellar location. Um, I think the example that we like to use is it's that Chicago office tower that might be two or three blocks off of Maine and Maine, right? Uh, or might be a more historic building rather than that new construction. Um, and the annual kind of returns on these are more in that kind of 10 to 14. So a little little higher return profile, but but a little bit more risk. And then the, the third kind of one is the value add. Um, this is kind of that bigger step out in the risk reward line. Uh, they have maybe a problem that needs some fixing. Maybe there's uh, some leasing to improve the, the vacancy that's going on. There's some maybe renovation. Uh, a good example I always use is, and we've seen these types of assets on our marketplace. It's that Class B, 1980s vintage multifamily, 200 unit, you know, in a suburb, uh, you know. But again, it's 80s vintage. It needs some, you know, new countertops, new paint and carpet in the in the apartment complex, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so has really nice upside. Um, still, you know, good asset, um, but, you know, you could expect to maybe get in that 15 to 19 percent kind of IRR range with a with a value add project project. And then, you know, there's the opportunistic. Uh, and, you know, these are that final rung of the, the risk reward ladder. Um, they're extremely kind of turnaround situations. You know, there's some major problems to overcome. Could be major vacancy, could be some structural things, some financial distress, maybe. Um, obviously, coming out of the 08, 09, there were a lot of opportunistic, uh, right. unfortunately, yeah. right? Uh, and it was usually financial distress. It could have been a good asset, but it could have uh, shown up opportunistic really because of the financial problems of the, the project itself. So, and then, you know, higher, you know, over 20% type of, uh, of levered returns on a, on a opportunistic type of deal. Wow. So going back to that stock example, it's kind of like large cap, mid cap, small cap, and then maybe the development is almost like startups or something. Exactly. Angel investing. (laughs) 
Angel investing. There we go. All right. Awesome. We got it all covered. Uh, so one cool thing that I saw on your site, I don't know, you know, across the industry, but it said that the average member investment was $45,000. That to me seems pretty significant. So I would think that that means that CrowdStreet generally is kind of attracting a higher net worth individual, but I, I really don't know, you know, across the, the category, but it seems like that's, that's pretty significant. It is. And, and I don't want it to dissuade, you know, the, the investors who say, you know, I'm, I, I've only got 25 or $50,000 to, to put to work in commercial real estate or, you know, in my portfolio that I'd like to put into real estate, because the beauty is, you know, some of our projects have a minimum of $10,000 investment. So even, Let's say the investor only has fifty thousand allocated to put towards this asset type. You know they can spread that fifty across two or three deals, um, so they can still get you know get some investment in there. But I'd say you know on average, um, you know, and we actually look at the data. Uh, most of our investors are putting you know close to three hundred thousand dollars to work you know on our marketplace, and so. You know, with uh, oh, it's great. 25, 50, you know, 100,000. And, and sometimes investors will come on, you know, it's the first time maybe doing this in an online paradigm. And so they might start with a $25,000 investment. And then the next one, they might put 50 or 75 or 100. Yeah. So I was going to ask, do people really kind of toe into this generally with smaller investments? And then as they get comfortable with it, they add to it. Did you see that as a kind of a trend across yeah, the platform? Yeah, we definitely see that as, as um, one of the easiest ways for, for people to get in to try it. You know, they the, number one, they want to get familiar and feel comfortable with CrowdStreet, right? Our team, uh, mm-hmm. our process, um, our vetting process of the sponsors. They also want to see, you know, how easy was this to work? They also... You know, want to make sure, you know, hey, am I getting my distributions right from the from the sponsor, uh, my monthly or mm-hmm. distributions? And then as their comfort level and trust goes up, then they're ready to, to put more to work. Um, we have That's cool. had some investors just say, hey, I'm going to throw down, you know, $50,000 across these five different deals and I'm just going to do it one mm-hmm. swoop. So very interesting. And one other really cool thing that I noticed with your your platform and your software is that you actually offer this out as a white label solution looks like to sponsors direct. And I was wondering, is that just so they can take what you have almost like your operating system and use it within their own kind of private networks? You're, you're exactly right. Um, and this was, you know, it's a great point, Sam. And I think early on, mm-hmm. remember, I talked about how for years, right, a lot of the sponsor, a lot of the developers and operators the way they raised the capital was through that you know private network of investors that they had um, and they yep. and they built up networks of 50 100 200 high net worth investors um, what they haven't used is technology to to manage that process and so they've kind of done it on spreadsheets and other things like that which can work but it's also every time i talk to those developers about their fundraising and investor management they said boy it's a real you know laborious type of thing right because they they aren't using mm-hmm. as much technology and most of those investors have really gotten used to investing through an offline you know medium and so when we introduced our marketplace some of the early developers and operators that that put a project on our marketplace came back to us and said wow you know Tor, I have to tell you, uh, I had 20 new investors come into my project. 
Some of them were investing, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, I didn't talk to them. I didn't take them out and golf or do anything like that. You know, they saw my project online. They were able to transact online. And now I'm able to communicate with them through the investor portal. Could I license that technology and I, I, mm-hmm. I could use it on my own website? So they really it was kind of opening their eyes to the to the value of using the online channel. And mm-hmm. even if they've, you know, worked with their investors offline for so many years, you know, those investors actually get excited when they're given that ability to log into the to the developer's website and to really go through, you know, that process online, whereas opposed to in the past, they'd get a lot of documents emailed to them or even mailed to them, right? Um, so everybody wins, the investors win, and, and the developers now creating a more streamlined investor management process. Yeah, it would seem like that's a really good opportunity because I imagine so many people that are in uh, the real estate side of things are a bit more traditional, older school, and maybe software is not their sweet spot. But like you said, they have those those big networks to leverage, and then you can provide the software solution. That seems like a, a win-win situation. Yeah, exactly. And by the nature of us running the marketplace, right, we are incorporating some of the best practices of of how to do it in a, in a very scalable manner. So all of that uh, learnings that we've gathered through running our marketplace goes right into building a software solution for those developers that, you know, speaks their language. And we've had lots of developers come back and say, wow, you've really nailed this entire process. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, because we're living and breathing it every day on our marketplace. And on your marketplace, so with the sponsors that are coming on board and putting the offers up there, is there a vetting process with CrowdStreet or is that 100% on the investor to do their own vetting in DD? No, you're uh, you're exactly right. We actually um, have a very stringent uh, vetting process that's that's been fine tuned over the last uh, five years. Uh, again, Ian Formigli, our our VP of Investments, is the one that that runs that process for us. And so it's really three steps of the vetting. We we vet the sponsor themselves. We have a deal screening process, and then we have an offering review. So we don't even we won't even look at the sponsor's deal or the offering until we vetted the sponsor. Mm. And so it's you know it really it comes down to um, you know their track record, their years of experience, um, how many assets under management, and you know I don't take this lightly, but their experience with managing and working with investors in the past, right? In that offline paradigm we talked about, right? Mm-hmm. If they're used to doing that and they're used to returning capital and providing updates to investors, you know, this uh, putting it on the marketplace is not foreign to them. It's just trying to teach them how to do it in an online way. And so we have a a pretty detailed. Uh, we have a video actually and details of that screening process, and investors really appreciate that because they know that before they show up on the marketplace, that the the sponsor and the deal and the offering have all been vetted um, by our investments team. And of, of the every you know uh, every month we look at these stats. Uh, roughly only 5% of the sponsors that come to us are actually getting through onto the marketplace. Wow, that's incredible. I had I had no idea that it was that stringent. So that's really cool. I think as like for me as an investor, what I would want to do is I would literally just want to go on, see a couple pretty photos. I would probably look at the years of the investment, how long the, the duration is and what the projected returns are. And just want to put 100% faith in, in the vetting and underwriting process through the platform and marketplace. But I don't think that's necessarily good advice for other people. I just know that that's more my kind of quick on the whim style, but I'm sure that you wouldn't recommend that fully, correct? 
I, I definitely would not. I think <laughs> I, uh, thanks for putting the trust in us. But, um, <laughs> Uh, and, and I think, you know, we are one of the check boxes, right, for mm-hmm. the investor to say, good, it, it did make it through CrowdStreet's vetting process. But at the end of the day, right, the investor is putting their capital and their investment into the sponsor's deal, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the sponsor is their fiduciary. Um, but the investor should look at all of that information that we are, you know, again, part of our process is to to show the investors CrowdStreet has very high standards in terms of what has to go on to that offering page. So we've had, you know, again, we're up front with the, the sponsors that, look, um, if you don't produce this information and this, uh, these documents, you, that's, that's how high the bar is. And our investor members on CrowdStreet expect to have that at their fingertips. They expect to have due diligence and market study data and appraisal reports and all of that. And that's part of, you know, what I get excited about is that we're helping to standardize what that offering material looks like so that investors can look at one one sponsor in their offering versus another sponsor in their offering and it's and there's some standardization to it. Nice. And one cool thing that you just mentioned that I had no idea and I'm not 100% sure what it means so I just wanted to to run real quick is that the sponsors are fiduciaries. Correct. Yeah. So that means yeah. they have to they sh- would have to do what's in the best interest of the the shareholders are right or the people that are investing into the into the offer exactly yeah because the uh the investors are you know either preferred or common equity s- stakeholders into the you know usually it's an llc that's set up right mm-hmm. so they're they're owning units if you will but they are equity ho- holders of that uh, that project and obviously there's a debt side of it so we all know who has the first lien position mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. It's, is the bank but right behind that that secured collateralized uh, position of the bank is the equity holders very cool i love that and um Definitely going to look forward to sharing that with the listeners. And can you share any stats with what the average returns were maybe in like 2016 or any any previous year, like totally across the platform, not specific class? Yeah, I think um, and I'll preface it this way is that um, and something we didn't touch upon, Sam, but, you know, most of the projects and the investments and this is where we obviously there's a deviation from stocks and bonds is that today it's an illiquid asset. Right. Um, When you invest into the commercial real estate project and the sponsors are up front, they they'll say, you know, our our projected investment horizon could be five years. It could Mm -hmm. be three. It could be seven. So they have an investment. You know, the sponsor has an investment thesis of, you know, let's use value add example of they're going to spruce up the the multifamily, you know, the apartments and they're going to raise the rents a little bit and they're going to increase occupancy, but they're going to hold the asset for a while. It's going to have some nice, again, cash on cash returns, right? And the investors will get their quarterly distributions, but, you know, they're really not getting that capital gain and they're really in for several years, could mm-hmm. be five years. Period. So our average uh, across the 110 projects that have been uh, on our marketplace, it's about an, a five-year average holding period, uh, with a focus on the equity. Right. Um, so the you know annual return statistics are going to be a little different, where some other platforms might focus on the debt piece. 
So, um, you know, we're looking at the projects and their intention to produce the distributions and see that the offerings are intended to produce that cash flow as, as um, on an annual rate of return. And so I can give you some numbers there. 8% is that average annual rate of uh, kind of, you know, distribution returns. Mm-hmm. Today, uh, we've actually on the, the marketplace, we've actually had two offerings that have been fully realized that occurred in 2016. And uh, one of those actually was a really quick return. It had a 50% return within six months. Dang. Um, this, this was obviously an upside surprise, so I don't want to say that's the norm. <laughs> Good disclaimer. It's, it's, yeah, it's not indicative, right, of what the investors, the other uh, kind of fully realized was a, was a ground-up development. So it did have an 18-month time horizon uh, and and the investors got what they had expected, which was the 14% annualized return on that project. But the other one was uh, kind of came out of left field where the um, soon after the investors got in, uh, the sponsor got offered a kind of, they got offered a, a price to, to purchase that they couldn't refuse, right? Mm-hmm. And investors were pretty happy as you could imagine. Dang. And when you say uh, fully realized, that just means the property has been vested and fully developed and or flipped and then the principal plus any type of distributions have been returned to the investors yeah exactly sam so it's it's like pretty much it's just closed off done and then onward so that's amazing eight percent that's fantastic tor amazing statistics appreciate you sharing that and being open with us so much to learn here. I know there's a lot of unaccredited investors out there that are hoping to get into this. I'm not sure there's any opportunities for them, correct? At least not in the, the immediate future. Well, what I could say is stay tuned uh, because, um, you know, this is part of this evolution, right? And I, I without getting into too much of the legislative regulatory stuff, that, that Reg D506C where you could go generally advertise was made available to accredited investors. Um, however, you know, about 18 months ago, the, the new uh, regulation around what's called Reg A plus was revised and, and improved. And that allows uh, somebody that has an offering to make it available to both accredited and non-accredited. And, um, you know, Darren and Ian, myself and, and the whole CrowdStreet team have kind of been trying to, again, educate the sponsors uh, to to kind of move in this direction. Um, we've actually worked with attorneys who specialize in this, uh, who, you know, can answer a lot of those questions. And so what I can tell you is um, the, the, the momentum is starting to shift where more of these developers are looking at doing the reggae type of filing. And obviously, we will bring those onto the marketplace as, as they're vetted, you know, appropriately. That's great. I, the whole non-accredited thing never made sense to me. I thought that if anything, they should allow non-accredited investors, but they should just cap it if, and just say, okay, you can only invest. 5000 a year and you can only invest maybe a 1000 into each deal or something maybe if they want to give them some some protection but not allowing them to have access to the asset class kind of I feel felt was almost unfair yeah and you're right Sam I think um, and that's what took some time was for uh, in the regulatory environment for them to put those guardrails around it uh, and that's what you know in the last 18 months finally came out was the the those guardrails of uh, X percent of the the non accredited income or investable assets and things like that. So they're now finally the uh, the guardrails are there, and now it's just getting um, more of the people that are doing the offerings to to go to the you know it's some extra effort to do a reg the reg A filing from a financial and a legal perspective, but um, there's some great upside there. 
And would that also include any type of like foreign nationals? I know there's a lot of restrictions with with uh, people outside the USA being able to get access to this. Is you think that would also loosen up in the future? It de- definitely. I think it's um, it's moving in that direction. So we're we're excited about not just obviously here in the U.S. but but internationally what this could mean. Excellent. So tour got a lot of people excited. This has been really really cool stuff. We love what you guys are doing. Can you tell us what's the best way for accredited investors today, maybe non-accredited investors in the future, what's the best way for people to get started? And if not, if they're not ready to invest, just to stay updated with kind of what you guys are doing and maybe some offerings that are on the marketplace? Yeah, I think the, the best way is obviously always to go to www.crowdstreet.com. It's really easy to register. Um, and you know, when, when you do register, um, we do actually ask if you're accredited or non-accredited because you know if most of the offerings are still to accredited, we don't want to let people and you know people into those that that can ultimately invest but what we do um, by registering we start to provide you some of that educational content um, I'll put a little plug in for for what we're gonna be launching here pretty soon uh, is a 160 page uh, ebook uh, that is all about kind of commercial real estate investing and so by by registering um, you will get access to that ebook that we're only going to make available to our registered uh, investor members on on CrowdStreet. So even um, you know those are the types of things we want people to get better educated about it, and also to just start to see you know the types of offerings that are available. We have the, every offering that goes up on our marketplace. We we host webinars. Um, and so we hear feedback from investor members that say, gosh, I really loved sitting on that, you know, our webinar and learning more about, you know, senior housing, this great developer that's done senior housing for the last 15 years. I've now got better educated about not just the asset class of senior housing, but the developer themselves. And now I, I know what, what I'd like to invest in. Yeah, I agree totally. I think you can learn so much just by pay, paying attention visiting the platform marketplace regularly and, and getting on the mailing list, you'll learn so much about the asset class and about just real estate in general. So definitely recommend it. Tor, this has been a lot of fun, very insightful, and we appreciate it. We uh, definitely look forward to watching CrowdStreet progress in the future and, and seeing what's new from you guys. So thanks again for coming on and uh, helping us out, learn more about commercial real estate. Well, yeah. Thank you, Sam, for the invitation. I've really enjoyed this. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. All right. That was another very interesting episode. I really liked Tor. Great guest. Learned a lot. Yeah. I, I think I, I just got an education in commercial real estate. I, I, I think going to school for at least a semester would have been, would have been the same as just listening to this episode. So right now, I think we looked at like our, our asset allocations a couple episodes back. This category still makes a relatively small percentage of my overall portfolio and yours as well. I definitely see it increasing. I'm still, I'm still not sure how much time I'm supposed to, to put into this stuff, right? Cause I, I could see this asset class, like you mentioned on the episode, commercial real estate is the third biggest asset class in the US, which is huge, right? There is a lot of this stuff to go around. And now just over the last few years, everyday investors like you and I, have access to this in a simple, in a simplistic way, but there's still a lot to know about doing it. And I mentioned on the episode, I just want to like, I just want to do it. I just want to log in, click, go, go, go and have full faith in it. But you can't really do that, right? So I'm exactly the same as you. I took a look at CrowdStreet mm-hmm. right after the interview and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. Maybe I should invest in this. And I wanted to do exactly what you had mentioned. And it was just, 
go on and just say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll put in 10 grand and just not think about it. But it sounds like this is something we still have to kind of do our due diligence on because whenever something is higher risk, it's also high reward. Mm-hmm. But by having the high reward, it's the higher risk. Absolutely. So I think it's important for us to start learning how this stuff works. I want to make a couple of investments in it. And I want to see how much time I feel like it, it really requires in order to make a sound decision. I would put a lot of faith on the fact that there's zero principal lost across the platform and you know, however many, a couple hundred deals that have gone through. That is a really, really important number to me as an investor because to me, it, it would allow me to theoretically use, put less time into it. Okay. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not searching for the 20% return. I'm not searching for even the 15%. If I can get a 10% return, but, and have limited time and keep it, the investment tr- truly passive, then I would be super happy. Well, let me ask you this. If all you want is a 10% return, why wouldn't you just go with a debt deal like something on Pier Street? I don't know. I don't know. I have an answer to that. I, I, I think that the 10% debt deals are not super easy to come by. And I feel like there's a uh, there's a tax advantage to doing an equity deal versus strictly debt. Okay, so I, I'm not too sure about the, the tax implications, mm-hmm. but for me, the only reason why I would spend my time and my money with something like CrowdStreet is because I'm chasing that 20% plus potential return. Okay, so you would do the, the much more risky side of things, right? 100%. So, so the average returns on a CrowdStreet were 8%, and we went over some of the categories, core being kind of the large cap, of their product or, or their their uh, deal offering, so you would go for the much riskier side, the kind of development, you know, yep. bad, maybe bad neighborhood yeah. or bad structure. Because well, I figure if something's ready developed, you know, let's say the he said the the, the kind of prime location, mm-hmm. it's really nice, nice tenants. What's the point of me putting money in when we know it's probably not going to go up that much? If anything, it only has a chance of going down. Yeah, I, I guess I look at this stuff more as I I would do this more for a safer side of investment. Can't really compare apples to apples, but my lending club account, I put all of my money into B loans, which are the second safest grade and, and yield less. And I'm, I'm it's almost totally broke even. Like you would have thought those were like F loans, right? So I actually took all mine out in D, E, and F loans. Yeah. And... I think we're going to have about the same returns. We're going to have zero, similar returns. Basically zero. But I had a higher chance of having a higher upside. Yeah. I I don't know. I, th- I think the more lending that I've done through this, like now because of Lending Club, I'm a little bit more conservative and, and cautious. And with this being a new real estate, you know, a new alternative class that putting money into, not knowing exactly the ins and outs, I would want to do the safest property possible, especially if we hit some big downturn. But again, you and I have different investing strategies and that was what make this really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Because for me personally, I don't think any any real estate is safe on the next big downturn. Mm-hmm. And just because something is kind of safe on paper now, I think during a downturn, everything's going to get hit. So I'd, if I'm going to put my money in, I'd rather take that gamble and say, you know what, is there going to be that 50% return? Yeah. Or is it... Just, you know, me putting my money in here for no reason. Well, take a look at this. You tell me, who does that guy look like? Steve Drew? I mean, look at... <laughs> you tell me the first person that comes to mind when you look at that. He looks like a very handsome kind of Superman looking guy. Why? I said Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg, yeah. Tom Brady. A mix. 50-50 okay. mix, right? I mean, that's pretty, I got, that's got to that's be pretty accurate. Anyways, 
Team wait, wait, who's Steve Drew? Well, Steve Drew's on their t- the team. We talked about him on the episode. So just because he has all that episode. But, uh, but I, I thought maybe I was mistaken. But, I mean, I'm looking at the photo again. and it, Definitely a handsome okay, guy. Okay, definitely a handsome guy. You guys guy. can check out all right, the check a look. About Me page. Steve Drew, shout out. Good photo. Okay. Okay. One thing that I haven't disclosed on this podcast before is that last year I invested <laughs> well, okay, I put money with this 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 guy that was basically buying and flipping houses and it was it was a reference through a friend. Guy called me, he's like, Hey, I got this guy. He's like got a great track record buying, flipping houses. Like, let's do it. Let's all put in, let's get four people, put in fifty K, start a little fund, and he's gonna flip a couple houses. For the first six months, everything was great. And then he called us up. He's like, Hey, I got these two deals I got to do. Like, can you just extend me another hundred K? And, uh, because the last six months had been good, we just, you know, he's like, I got it. We're, we're closing on the properties today. Uh, tomorrow we, I need the money now. So we like rushed to get him the hundred K. Didn't, didn't, you know, write anything out in contracts for this extra money, essentially line of credit. Guy's gone, gone, not answering emails. Don't know where he is. So we, lo- four of us lost, uh, 100k so 25 grand right it was a huge mess because then we, we were able to take control back of the other properties sell them at like a discount get some of our original principal back but we all ended up losing like 30 grand and it was just like a horrible experience all around so i personally have had a lot of bad experiences in real estate so far right i just disclosed like my thai property returned negative numbers uh, over the year, uh, you know, we had the issue in the Hong Kong properties. We have had this. So it doesn't matter if you're doing it the, you know, the, the physical, tangible property way or if you're doing it through like online resources and crowdfunding. It all matters about what you know and how you structure things, right? You can make mistakes in any side of it. And I'm, you know, I'm proof that you can make sides on it on the 2000 year old traditional way, right? What blows my mind is we are 53 episodes in. We've been friends for years now. And it seems like every week <laughs> you disclose something you've lost money on. I like to try to hide some of these and, <laughs> and keep them as nuggets for future episodes. But one day I'm going to make a list of like all the different investment mistakes I've made. Luckily, they've all been somewhat capped to under... I'll tell you what. I think the, I, I said this on the Phil Town episode. I think the biggest mistake I ever made was giving... A significant significant amount of money, multiple millions of dollars to an advisor. And over three years, that account lost money. Not a lot of money, but the opportunity cost of having that money just be the market, like in the S&P 500, was a million dollars or more. So that's the biggest mistake I had. But I've also, you know, I've had a lot of investment losses and we'll we'll keep the bait there. Maybe we'll do a full episode on just ways of lost money. (laughs) But, you know, I'm sorry to to laugh at a joke about it, but I think one of the reasons why this this podcast is so relevant to so many people is because you never hear about mistakes people made. You never hear about losses. Yeah. People love to celebrate and just brag about all the picks they've done where they've made money. Nobody wants to talk about when they've lost. Yeah. Well, live and learn. And I think over the last year of, of us doing this podcast, I mean, let's hope that we make smart investment decisions going forward. Uh, the one thing I really like about the real estate crowdfunding is even though Tor said on that, on this episode, you need to do your own due diligence. You really need to like look into the details of this stuff. We went over some of the terminologies. I almost feel more comfortable logging in, throwing a dart at the wall based on them doing the due diligence and knowing that the underwriting is good because how I got 
screwed over in that other deal was because the underwriting wasn't good and we didn't really even do due diligence on this guy, not to the degree that someone like them could. So I think that there's a huge future of this. It's a massive asset class. There's a lot of good companies doing it. There's, and I think you could make a full-time job out of analyzing these types of deals, but this is, this is brand new to people like you and I. And I think this is going to be a huge thing. I mean, it, it's growing like crazy right now. It's probably the hottest topic in investing. I mean, we surveyed our users and real estate was number one and everyone loves technology now. So it's, it makes sense that this is just going to continue to grow and grow. And as we can, to me, again, the number one thing, zero loss, zero principal loss, as long as a company can keep that statistic, people can throw darts. Yeah. Until there's the next big downturn. Cause we've been on a, you know, I mean, when was crush you fun? Um, how long has it been around? 2012. And that was after yeah. the 2008 yeah. session. And so we haven't been through anything yet. So that, that to me, that's the only reason why I'm like, ah, oh, okay, we know they've had a good track record now, but let's see what happens in the next downturn. But you know what? I, right now, let's actually just take a look at a couple of the deals and let's see if we can figure this out. Cause the, the first time I looked at it, it looked like I was trying to read Chinese. Mm-hmm. So we have Burnside commercial building. It's called, it's in Portland, Oregon. And we have minimum investment is 25 grand. Mm-hmm. It's a development, uh, this profile. There's equity multiple. We know what that is from the episode. Okay. So equity multiple is what they feel like the potential capital upside is. So let's say you buy it for a hundred thousand. It's a one point nine five multiple. So they project that it could it could basically double over the course of the derma duration, which means they're probably going to renovate it, add value, and then try to flip it. Okay. And the target investment period is four years. Mm-hmm. So the goal would be in the next four years for it to double. So your 25 grand could potentially be worth, no, uh, not 25 yeah. grand. Yeah, you're, well, let's just say 25, 25 grand. grand. Yeah. yeah, it could be worth 50 grand. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, even if you get halfway up that ladder. So that's I think 25% a year. Mm-hmm. So what was the targeted investor IRR again? I don't remember. That's the, uh, this is at 22%. And now, uh, that seems like it would be basically the two, yeah, the 2% percent broken down by four years. Okay. That makes sense. So, I mean, that would be, even if you could achieve half of that, I think most people would be happy, right? Yeah. So, that's the internal rate of return. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess. It and would... there's there's a lot of numbers there. Uh, there's a lot of terms that we still need to to really like learn and understand. And anyone that's been in real estate for a long time would understand that. Well, you know, I'm taking a look at another deal right here. This one is in Irvington, Texas, mm-hmm. the CCI Cottonwood. And this one, the multiple is higher at 2.13. But the IRR is lower at 20.8%. Mm. So that's definitely not broken down. Well, you know what? I'll circle back around with Tor and we'll try to dissect a couple of these real world examples and distinguish the difference between the different terminologies. And so to be honest, one of the reasons why, even though I was excited about investing in, in mm-hmm. Crowd Street or commercial real estate. So the, the reason why I want to do it is because I want to have a bigger potential upside than 8%. Yeah. And... I would love to own commercial real estate, but I don't want to deal with the yeah. headaches of it. Yeah. So this sounds like a great idea. The reason why I'm hesitating on actually investing is because I don't understand these terms. It's it's complicated to me. When I log into something like Pure Street and I and it's just a pure debt deal, mm-hmm. they say in within twelve months they're going to pay you eight, nine, or ten percent interest, and they might pay it back early, or if they foreclose. You know, we are the first lien holder of the house. We can probably get most of your money back or all your money back. Mm-hmm. To me, that makes a lot of sense. And 
with things like this, I, I like that potential upside, but I'm 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 nervous about it. Well, I think there's just more there's more to understand in this, and that is what grants and warrants the higher return, right? If you're strictly passive, hands off, I don't want to get involved. Give me some paper assets, and I want to go play football type of investor. Then the, the simpler it is, the better. But a lot of people that are investing through CrowdStreet are investing a lot more money. We the average investment per offering is $45,000. That's big. Like, you know, in some of our peer-to-peer loans we're putting $250 or or maybe maximum like 2 grand, right? Per. So, these are bigger investments. These are people that are probably doing more, you know, maybe have a bit of a real estate background and more experience doing this stuff, but then the upside is is larger. So, everyone's got to pick their playing field and I think this is definitely a good one. Definitely certainly one of the top top names in real estate crowdfunding. And if uh, if people are interested in, in looking into this stuff, definitely t- check out CrowdStreet. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, take a look at it. You know, first off, it's, it's for right now, it's for accredited investors only. But I think actually it's not. I re-listened to the episode and the way I understand it now is that it it's not actually for accredited investors only. It's just that the sponsors have to do a little bit extra legwork to make it available for non-accredited. Uh, so I think that's very new. And very uh, encouraging for non-accredited investors because I think that is coming very soon, which is I know a lot of listeners have been hoping for this. Yeah, and, and you know, if you guys don't remember what an accredited investor is, basically a million in net worth, or I think two or three years of track record of two hundred thousand, two hundred grand. Yeah, and I don't think they actually check it. Anyone, you know, so you could just technically put it in your profile. Some of them don't check it. I think CrowdStreet. I actually there's there's I think everyone's getting a lot tighter on. On checking it, there's, there's there's been a few in the past that have been very lenient on it, but um, I think it's all starting to get tighter. But to be honest, like I think it's totally ridiculous that non-accredited investors can't get access to it. It's it's like classing people, and, and it just doesn't feel right. You yeah, know, like I, I, let yeah. people make their own decisions. If you want to give them some guidelines or some restraints, I think that's okay. But don't don't remove their ability to invest in a great asset class. Yeah. You know? And just because I mean, and this is the kind of like the whole thing about the rich get richer and the poor get poorer right. is if people that don't have that much money can't even have these opportunities, mm. how can they make you know make more money? Versus someone that has a lot, they can just kind of throw darts at yeah. something and be like, okay, I'm good. Yeah. Well now people can invest equity crowdfunding. So you know that real estate crowdfunding is a day away, right? Because if you can invest in startups through crowdfunding, then you should definitely be allowed to invest in real estate, which is much less volatile and has hundreds of years or thousands of years of, of history and track record. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, check it out, CrowdStreet.com. Uh, Minimums are much higher than kind of some of the other ones we've looked at. I'm taking a look at what's available right now. It looks like the cheapest deals are 10 grand a minimum with most of that 25 grand. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, Tim. Are you are you gonna are you gonna invest? Okay, I am going to. I've decided I'm going to start putting more money into these types of asset classes because I continue to have mounting headaches with physical real estate and foreign pro, uh, foreign corporations and properties and stuff. Uh, I believe that this is a very good time to get into this alternative asset class if you do it through a top platform. I was looking. There's like some 150 real estate crowdfunding sites out there, so I think. Going with a good brand with good management, good team, as CrowdStreet certainly seems to have, 
is one of the leading things that I would look at because I would definitely be less on the technical and, and due diligence side. So I'm definitely going to be putting more money in this asset class. I just want to, I want to free up a little bit of time, like a week to really dive into some of the numbers, understand how this stuff works. And then I'm definitely going to be moving more of my portfolio into this stuff. I like it. And to be honest, I think compared to what you've been doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially buying, you know, actual physical property in places like Thailand or what else do you have? <laughs> Hong Kong, the USA. Um, I think that rounds it out. I th- I think doing something like this virtually, doing something like Cow Street is going to be a better idea. It's going to be less headache. It's going to be more hands-off. Mm-hmm. And because you have someone else vetting it, yeah, I think you overall would actually do better. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's a good direction you're taking. I think for me, I still want to do co- commercial real estate. I am not going to jump straight in like I normally do and just click buy while we're recording the episode, <laughs> especially because I just had a couple glasses of wine now that we're here in Caledonia, this freaking beautiful monastery. This, I wish, is, this I, I isn't exactly the place that like inspires you to just start doing business or even open the computer. In fact, the only reason we want to ep- record this is just because it's fun and we're hanging out and drinking wine, but yeah. otherwise we would not be working. And we're <laughs> waiting for the barbecue to fire up so we can have dinner. Right. And so... I will look more into both CrowdStreet as well as commercial real estate. And I would expect in the next couple of years, I'll be investing in something. I don't know what it will be. Mm-hmm. But if you guys are going to invest in this or if you guys you know, want to start a discussion, join the Boss Lounge, our Facebook group. Go to investlikeaboss.com. Click on bonus and you will get an invite to our Boss Lounge there. So big shout out to Tor and CrowdStreet for coming on the show and sharing. That was really a super educational show. We learned a lot about commercial real estate and of course about CrowdStreet. Um, and if you guys are out there and you're investing through CrowdStreet, let us know. Let us know how the experience is and we'd love to hear. Yeah. And I want to give a big shout out to everyone who's been leaving these amazing five-star reviews of the podcast on iTunes. You guys are the reason why we can continue growing and get these big name CEOs and founders on the podcast. This week, I want to say thank you to Brooke Cravern from the US. Awesome podcast. Five stars. Sam and Johnny hosting the Best Like a Boss highlight all modern investing in this can't miss podcast. Their hosts and their expert guests offer insightful advice that is helpful to anyone that listens. So thanks so much. Sam and I are going to enjoy this monastery week out here in retreat. I hope some of you guys come out to Catalonia, Spain. Subscribe to the email list on investlikeaboss.com and we're gonna start. Maybe we we'll start having some meetups while while we're both hanging out in town. So if any of you guys are in Spain and want to meet in Barcelona, keep an eye out. Maybe right in the Boss Lounge, and we'll meet you in person. Catch y'all next week. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.